to another episode of Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, and we're still dealing with the pandemic, so for the time being, we'll have to keep connected virtually, even as we maintain our distance. We're broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Special thanks to the Ottawa Public Library for their collaboration in our second virtual season. It's all begun, and it's all available online at writersfestival.org, so all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. I want to thank you in advance for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. It's always a good idea to buy a book, and of course, you can't go wrong supporting local independent booksellers. Our guest today, Mary Lawson, was born and raised in the small farming community of Blackwell near Sarnia, Ontario. Her first novel, Crow Lake, published when she was 55 years old, was an international sensation sold in 28 countries. It spent 75 weeks on bestseller lists in Canada, won the Amazon First Novel Award, was a New York Times bestseller, and was chosen as a book of the year by the New York Times, the Sunday Times, the Washington Post, and the Globe and Mail. The Other Side of the Bridge, her second novel, was long listed for the Booker Prize. Her third, Road Ends, was another top 10 bestseller and a finalist for the Folio Prize. Today, she'll be talking with our host, Deborah Dundas, books editor at the Toronto Star, about her fourth novel, Just Out and Already a Bestseller. Deborah will set the stage, Mary will give us a taste of the prose, and then we'll hear all about this acclaimed new novel, A Town Called Solace. Mary, it's so nice to speak with you. Thanks for for joining us this morning. Deborah, it's just wonderful to be here. I I wish it could be in person, but um, technology is a wonderful thing. Do you know what it is? It's wonderful how many people were able to speak to um, in it's sort of in an intimate way and not not on the phone these days, even though uh, we can't see each other in person. But boy, I can't I can't wait for those days again. Oh, boy. Well, they're coming. We're they told are. they're coming. They are. Fingers crossed. Well, in, in the meantime, what we, we get to do is hear you through this wonderful podcast medium. Um, first, read a little bit for us uh, from A Town Called Solace and then uh, talk about it. Okay. There are three characters in this book and Liam Kane is one of them. He's um, a stranger to the town called Solace. He's just driven north from Toronto. He's never been north before. He is not impressed by it. Mm-hmm. And he's gone into uh, the one and only restaurant, uh, which hasn't been recommended, but there isn't anything else. <clears throat> and so he, he goes in and here you go. The waitress was a big woman, getting bigger the further south you went. A small head with a frizz of yellow hair, no neck, sloping shoulders, gigantic bosom flowing lava-like down and along the rolling foothills of her gut. God alone knew what lay below. What's it to be, she said, standing over Liam. You wouldn't want to pick a fight with her, that was for sure. The place was empty, but for the two of them, there was no one to come to his aid. Could I see a menu? No menus this time of year. Oh, uh, okay. What have you got? Burgers and fries or poutine? 
Nothing else? No one around here wants anything else. Guess I'll have the burger and fries, Liam said, with all the trimmings. He hesitated. Do you have trimmings? Onions, mustard, ketchup, relish. A slice of tomato? Tomato was good if the burger was overcooked, which it would be. No tomatoes. I'll have everything you've got, Liam said. Coffee? You have coffee? That's great. He overdid it a bit, and the look she gave him reminded him of a rattlesnake, although he'd never seen a rattlesnake. She rolled off with his order. In the empty booth opposite him, there was a crumpled newspaper. He retrieved it and sat back down. It was called the Tomiskaming Speaker and was published in New Liskard. He'd driven through New Liskard on his way here, a small northern town, though a metropolis compared with Solace. He looked for news about the shooting at the Munich Olympics, then realized the paper was a weekly and also a week out of date. On the front page was a photo of the winner of a plowing competition. It was all local news, farming reports, no mention of Nixon or Vietnam. It was kind of restful, Liam decided, like being on a desert island or somewhere out in space. He read the speaker while he ate. Solace didn't get a mention until the bottom of page five, where there was a small photo of a girl, her hair backcombed into a huge beehive, eyes ringed with black, staring belligerently at the camera. Underneath was the caption, Solace Girl, still missing. Okay, so that's Liam. That's Liam. So he's a very mysterious figure that, uh, that, that appears in, in the middle of Solace, which is such a small town, and everybody knows everybody else. Uh, was he who you expected him to be, Liam? Well, no. In fact, I, he was the most difficult character to write. I should just say here that uh, he is first noticed moving into the house next door by Clara, who is seven. Mm-hmm. And she sees this strange man moving into a house that belongs to her friend, old Mrs. Orchard, who's in hospital. Mm-hmm. And Clara's not happy about all that. Liam uh, is a city boy born and bred. Um He is not in a good place emotionally. He has just divorced his wife and walked out of his job and has not the remotest idea what he's going to do next, except that out of the blue, he discovered that he was given a house Mm -hmm. by an elderly woman whom he had not seen for 30 years. He's now 34-ish. Mm-hmm. and it's way up north, and there's no way he wants a house up north, um, but he decides to drive up and look at it and sell it and go back to the city, which city he doesn't know. He doesn't know what comes next. Mm-hmm. So he was a bit of a mystery to me um, initially, and it wasn't until I started telling Elizabeth Orchard story. She's the old woman who left him the house and who Mm -hmm. lives next door to Clara, that I realized who Liam was. Um, She first, Elizabeth Orchard, first met him 30 years ago. In fact, 
slightly more than that, mm-hmm. back in 1940, when he was three and his family moved in next door to her. Uh, Liam at that stage had two twin sisters who were older than he and his mother was pregnant with two more. Mm-hmm. And Elizabeth Orchard had just by that stage lost her fifth child, had her fifth miscarriage mm. and was in utter despair and a dark depression. Mm-hmm. And this this family moves in next door with all these children and she thinks it's going to kill her until she meets Liam and is simply enchanted by him. Uh, and her affection for him uh, grows and is made stronger by the fact that his mother very much favors the girls and finds Liam uh, a terrible burden and a nuisance. And so I, I thought, okay, so what is that going to do to him in later life? Mm-hmm. Uh, what, are the, what are the consequences of this? And I'm fortunate in that my sister's a clinical psychologist. So I I said to her, I guess my basic question is, are we prisoners of our past or can we break out of it? I mean, what what can you do if you're if you're brought up without love? Can you ever love? Uh, and I thought that was an interesting question. And it 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 made me see Liam much more clearly. I thought, okay, this is who this guy is. He's a really troubled guy. He's never managed to make a relationship work in his life. Your your books sort of seem to begin with your characters. The characters are so rich. Is that where you start when you approach writing a book? It absolutely is, yes. Um, The first character I had with this book was Clara, mm-hmm. uh, seven years old, the little girl next door who sees Liam moving in with these four big cardboard boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, I just had this scene in my mind and I thought, okay, why is she looking out of the window and what's in the boxes and who is she? Oh, that's um, wonderful. It's a mystery waiting to be unpacked, literally. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, and the books go on being a mystery to me, I have to say. I do not seem to be capable of planning a book. I wish that I were because it's all trial and error, and it's a very slow and unsatisfactory process, just rewriting and rewriting until I finally get them to the point where I can't do anything more with them. And then that's the end. And then off it goes to, to the, the publisher. Now you've um, been writing, this is your first book in 10 years, right? So have you been writing this book for all that time? No. And it's actually seven years. Seven I think. years. Come, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no, that's all right. I, I know where you got that. That was a, um, a mistake on someone else's part. Um, I think. 2014 was when the last one came out. Um, And it does take me forever. There's no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. Firstly, uh, to get either a character or a storyline 
almost always it ends up being character. Mm-hmm. And then and then you put them in a situation. I mean, with Clara, it was clear what the situation was. There was there was somebody next door who should not be there. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was going to um, lead to some sort of relationship between her and the man next door. And I did not at that stage know what it was. It's, um, it's interesting because that, that slow unfolding and unpacking um, really leads to, you know, a, a, a gentle page-turning propulsion in the book. That, well, good. I'm glad it keeps you turning the pages. In, in a sense, it does me too, because mm-hmm. I, I was very interested. I did not know how Liam was going to react to this child. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I actually had them together in a room, actually the living room of his house, he comes in, he's been out, and there is a child whom he knows belong ne- belongs next door. He has seen her coming home from school. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't know what to say to her. And he doesn't know anything about kids. He said no contact with children. He doesn't know what they're capable of understanding at what age or anything. And I thought, so what's, what's the first thing he's going to say? And... From the minute he said the first word, mm-hmm. I I knew how that relationship was going to unfold. But I didn't know until I got that that first word. And when you think about it, it's a pretty obvious first word. <laughs> it is but, actually. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, sure. <laughs> Why would it be anything else? <laughs> Why would it be anything else? Well, he couldn't think of anything else to say, so that is what he said. (laughs) That that helped to develop his character. Mm -hmm. Because if the first thing he said was, get out, Mm -hmm. we were going down a different route. Yes. That that wasn't the first thing he said. He's not pleased she's there, but that is not the first thing he says. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that says something about him straight away. Now, now the book is structured in such a way that you tell the story from different points of view. <clears throat> in turn, Elizabeth's, Mrs. Orchard's, Liam, yes. Clara. Why tell the story in this way? I wish I could answer that. <laughs> I mean, most writers, um, I think, know basically what they're doing. But with me, it... Uh, I just keep trying to write stuff until it happens. Um, I, th- I think you're being hard on yourself, by the way. I don't know that most writers, <laughs> there's, oh. a, there's a whole wide range, wide range of, 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 the, of, of how people approach the creative process, I think. Well, I guess you're right. I guess you're right. It just it seemed, I mean, it was clear that there had to be three characters, whether they were all going to be viewpoint characters. Mm-hmm. Um, First person, needed, yeah. That's right. Whether whether we were going to hear each of their stories or whether one just kind of had a, a, a walk on role, I did not know mm-hmm. until I started thinking about who they would have been. And then I realized that um, Elizabeth Orchard, um, 
whose house this is that Liam moves into and um, whom Clara loves dearly. Mm -hmm. Mrs. Orchard had a story every bit as interesting as theirs. Sure. And therefore I thought, okay, it isn't a two-hander. I had thought it was. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I started writing her in the third person, both Liam and Clara are in the third person he Mm -hmm. said she said but I couldn't get her to work her story is um so intimate she has she is such a troubled soul Mm -hmm. funny and perceptive and there is something in her past she is she's at the end of her life now she's 72 and her heart is packing up on her Mm-hmm. And she's looking, she's looking back on this period when she knew this little boy and um, how things developed. And there was, in fact, a tragedy uh, that took place. And uh, she sees that tragedy as her fault and wishes to make amends for it. So it's the telling of her story and of that tragedy that I thought, okay. I'm going to try her from the first person because I want the reader to be right inside her head. Mm-hmm. And with the first person, um, that is more possible than in any other way. The first person you're, you're seeing right into their soul. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a useful tool for the writer and it's useful for the reader. It's it's interesting too because on the surface, if you you know there there are you know a few characters interacting. It's a small town. There's not on the surface a whole heck of a lot going on. Um, I mean, there there is the one sort of storyline with Clara and her sister, which, which which we'll get to. But it really is the dynamic between the characters and the mystery of finding out who they are that that lends all the action really to to the story. There's a a sort of gentleness about the storytelling, but there's a whole heck of a lot going on beneath the surface. Yeah, the the development of the characters is what chiefly interests me and their Mm -hmm. relationship to each other. And that dictates the action, if you like. the book before last, The Other Side of the Bridge, I had two brothers, uh, mm-hmm. Arthur uh, and Jake Dunn. Arthur, a big, solid guy. And his little brother, who is everything that Arthur is not, charming and smart and funny mm-hmm. and the works. And I thought, okay, so what's their relationship? And I put them in a scene together, which turned out to be the introduction, the, the uh, prologue. Mm-hmm. And by the end of that scene, oh, I gave Jake a knife. The younger one, I gave a knife. Uh, he was a very hyperactive kid. Mm-hmm. And I thought a knife would be interesting. And by the, <laughs> by, <laughs> by the end of that scene, I knew what was going to happen in the book. And mm-hmm. I had not had a clue before. But it was the relationship between those two brothers and what their what the dialogue, what the conversation between them revealed about how they felt about each other and about mm-hmm. who they were, that determined the action in the book. So you're right. 
not a whole lot goes on apart from the things that characters are driven to by who they are in the situation that they find themselves in. It's interesting too, though, because each of the characters, Elizabeth, Liam, and Clara, have a, a character close to them who are pretty much absent in the book, right? There, there's these absent characters. Uh, with yes. Clara, it's her sister Rose. With Liam, it's his, uh, you know, his his uh, wife Fiona, and Elizabeth. Orchard, it's her her husband. Um, what were you doing with having these absent characters sort of hovering around the action? Well, I think like everything else that I write, that was an accident. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Clara was the first one who came to me and I was wondering who is this kid and why is she standing at the window? Mm-hmm. And then I thought, I think what happened next was that I saw on television one of these dreadful appeals that you get all too often where a child goes missing mm-hmm. and uh, the distraught parents come on television. And I remember wondering what it was like for the siblings, for the children. You never hear their story. And yeah. I thought, Maybe this child, Clara, maybe her older sister, whom she adores, mm-hmm. had a flaming row with their mother and stormed out and simply disappeared. It's, it's been 12 days since she disappeared, and mm-hmm. there have been police searches, there's been everything, and there's not a trace of her. And I thought, okay. So I don't know what has happened to Rose, Mm -hmm. but maybe that will become clear as the story goes on. But I do know what Clara's problem is now, and that is her missing sister Rose and her desperation to get her back. Mm -hmm. Um, So she has, in fact, two people missing in her life. She has Rose and she has Mrs. Orchard, who, who had told her that she would be back soon, and she has not come back soon. Mm -hmm. Um, And so really the only person she has to talk to because her parents are so distraught is Mrs. Orchard's cat, Moses. Yes. Um, And for Liam, well, he's getting a divorce and basically his wife, uh, their marriage was um, a mistake from the beginning, Mm -hmm. Uh, he was desperate to be able to form a relationship, not to be divided from the rest of the world by himself and his own inability to relate to people. Mm -hmm. And basically, he chose her because she was smart and beautiful and funny, and he uh, fancied her like mad. And... Mm -hmm. She was attracted to him, and therefore they got married, and that is not enough, basically, and for the basis of a marriage, and uh, it doesn't work. So he has come up to solace uh, with the divorce still in process, and Fiona, his wife, um, 
always in the back of his mind with, in particular, as would be the case, Mm -hmm. the disastrous final years of their relationship. That's what he can't get out of his head. Yeah. And And then... And then with Elizabeth, I was just going to say with Elizabeth, her husband, she had a wonderful marriage, a wonderful husband, Mm -hmm. and he died eight years previous to this, to the beginning of this novel. Mm -hmm. And to, she can't let him go. Uh, To her, he is still with her. Mm -hmm. And she talks to him inside her head. Um, and occasionally out loud, uh, all the time. Don't we all? And yeah, <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And she, it is, it is to him that she goes through in trying to explain to herself. She explains to him mm-hmm. what it was that happened all those years ago, which caused. Um, really a tragedy for two families mm-hmm. and one and one small child. Uh, and she tries to explain this all to Charles in her head mm-hmm. as she lies in the hospital bed. Now, you can see why it takes me so long. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> no. It's just very slow. Your, your, your books all take place in the north. Northern Ontario. Why? Yes. You're in England right now. I'm in England now, and I have been in England for more than 50 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people ask me all the time why I still write about home. And the answer is uh, I still consider it home, which isn't to say um, I haven't loved England. I I do. It, it, it's been wonderful to me. I've had a great, a wonderful uh, life over here, but mm-hmm. um, I grew up in a small farming community, very remote, very isolated mm-hmm. uh, in southern Ontario. But our family had had a cottage up in Canadian Shield territory mm-hmm. since 1917. So going back six generations Amazing. from now. Yes. And all of us considered that home. And when I uh, got married over here, when I realized that I was staying, I just came over on holiday for six months and ran out of money and had to get a job and met a guy. And we got married back home Mm -hmm. uh, in the Canadian Shield. And uh, when I realized that that, in fact, meant that I was going back to England because we both had jobs there and um, that I was no longer on holiday, this was going to be home, yeah. then then it hit me how much I missed it, uh, how, much, how much it was part of me. Mm-hmm. I really think that where you grow up helps to form you. And when I started writing years later, after my children started school, Mm-hmm. I started trying to write, and it wasn't until I I was writing short stories, and I wrote a good many of them and had some success with them and kind mm-hmm. of enjoyed it, but it wasn't until I wrote one that became the basis of Crow Lake, my first mm-hmm. book, 
that I finally realized what I wanted to say. I, I was writing for women's magazines back then because I was writing for money. We needed mm-hmm. the money, and this was something I could do at home. And although there are good literary magazines, they don't actually pay you if you're not a known name. They do not. So, no. So the only way to make money was to write for women's magazines, which, of course, have requirements. They have a readership that is interested in certain things, and you're to write about them. So mm-hmm. I did. And one of their requirements was that uh, the stories be contemporary and be set in England. So that was what I did. But then I had an idea suddenly for a story uh-huh. uh, that I just had to write. It was the first time I had felt like that. Mm-hmm. And it was a story that demanded a small community um, and uh, a very isolated area and a a close family growing up and I thought this is a Canadian story definitely Mm -hmm. I'm setting it I'm setting it at home so I did and I absolutely adored writing that book because Mm -hmm. I knew what I was talking about I set it in my own childhood so uh, Kate Morrison who is the narrator of that book was Mm -hmm. born in 1946 and so was I Mm-hmm. And um, I just I knew exactly how it would be. It isn't based on the community I grew up in because I definitely respect um, people's privacy. I would not mm-hmm. have done that to them. But if what had happened in the book had happened in reality, which it didn't, that's how it would have been. I knew I had it right. And when I finished the short story, I thought, Oh, I don't know what to do with it. I guess I'll I'll send it to the magazine that's published most of my stuff. Mm-hmm. So I did, and I got a phone call from the fiction editor who said, Mary, you know this isn't our sort of thing, mm-hmm. but I love it, and so I'm going to publish it. But two things I need to say to you. One, you've got the basis of a novel here, mm-hmm. and two, you have to write about your home. Your writing goes up a level when you write about your home. Oh, isn't that interesting? Isn't that something? Mm-hmm. So she was the trigger, and I spent the next five years trying to figure out how to turn a short story into a novel. And, uh, um, and, and there we are. And then four years after that, trying to figure out how to publish it, I think, wasn't it? How to, how to, get, how to get it published. <laughs> well, first it came, firstly came me giving it to my husband, who said it was great because uh-huh. it was, he, he was a smart man, and then giving it to my sister, Uh, who I thought was the only one brave enough to really tell me the truth. Mm -hmm. And I said, just tell me if it works. And she said, and I said, if you can't tell me the truth, then don't do it because it's a waste of time. Yeah. And she she said, okay, I'll tell you the truth. And uh, she did. She said, no, it doesn't work. It reads like a long, short story. So it took me, yeah, it took me another year to figure out how to expand that. She said it needs something else. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, it took me a long time to figure out what else. It's, it's, um, it's, it's a difficult process, this uh, process of creating, this process of creating, isn't it? I mean, I think. Uh, yeah. So yeah. And I, if I had studied 
English perhaps at university. Um, I might have learned how to structure uh, a book. Um, on the other hand, they might have tried to teach me how to write a book, and that would have been a mistake, I think, mm. um, in that. I mean, I wish I had been able to develop some technique myself, mm-hmm. but I do think you need to figure out your own voice. Um, mm. That was essentially what this fiction editor was saying to me when she said you need to write about your home. She was saying, you've just found your voice. I realize that. Now go and, and take it and, and use it. Yeah. And it's a Canadian voice. So that's that's why I've set the book there, because I love writing about it. And it gives me an excuse to go back even more often than we do already in order to do research. I go I go truly north um, up to the New Liskett area because nobody would believe that uh, cottage country was ever as remote as it, <laughs> as it is in the book. You know, it's it's as busy as Toronto, maybe more. Yeah, Muskoka's so. not what it used to be, is it? No, no, it really isn't. It really isn't. So I shipped that, and I combined it with the little farming community, mm-hmm. shipped, and shipped the whole thing a few hundred miles further north, uh, kind of north and west west of New Liskard, um, where you can still find very very remote little communities, mm-hmm. and. Um, it's, it's interesting to me, too, because by, by writing about the North, um, and particular in, particularly in sort of a, a popular literary way, you, you end up adding, you, you know, you, you mythologize it, right? You end up adding to the mythology of the North, um, which is interesting. You put it on the map for others, and it becomes, uh, it becomes richer in, in how we know it, um, I think that's an interesting thing about writing of location and um, and and exploring exploring that and and really creating a uh, a point of view of the place. Does that make sense? It it does actually um, because I mean that's what it's like for me writing them. I'm there in my head, so. If I do my job properly, so is the reader. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, it's a little bit like going there, obviously. There's mm-hmm. absolutely no substitute for the real thing. But you do hopefully get a picture not just of that fabulous landscape, that mm-hmm. unbeatable landscape, but also uh, life as it is lived um, up there. And it is a very different atmosphere. One of my brothers lives in the north. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's a very different way of life. Very different. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's glorious fun to be able to spend so much time there in my head. And I hope it's it's fun to be able to read about it as well. It is. Um, now, there's back to the the books uh, a, a little bit is that there's at least one character in in this latest book, Doctor Christofferson, who will be familiar to your readers from your other books. So you're creating a line, you know, a, a through line, a connection of uh, of characters by introducing him. I mean, he's only in there for a bit of a cameo, but he uh, once again it was accidental in Crow Lake, which is where he first appears in a very minor role. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Kate, the narrator, the little girl, says that he's 
uh, their doctor, and in fact, the only doctor for 100 miles, which he would be. Mm -hmm. And when I decided to write a second, I hadn't known I was going to, um, and it turned out to be the other side of the bridge. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was set in the same area. Crow Lake was close to a fictional town called Struan, Mm -hmm. and the other side of the bridge is set in Struan, as is Road Ends, the third book. Mm -hmm. Um, I realized that if there was going to be a doctor in the other side of the bridge, it would have to be Dr. Christofferson. Mm-hmm. I mean, not maybe the same one. It could be his father. It could be his son. Um, but Dr. Christofferson was going to be in it. And as it happened, uh, the Dr. Christofferson, whom we first met in Crow Lake, his son is one of the two major characters in the other side of the bridge and plays another small role in Road Ends. Mm-hmm. And then a small role in this book but I was stuck with him because we're still in the north (laughs) so I was I was extremely lucky in that my brother the one whom I say lives in the Mm -hmm. north Mm -hmm. um, managed to find me a doctor who had been a doctor up there the only doctor um 50 years previously and in this book uh, a town called Solace. My brother found me a policeman who had been the, <laughs> o- the only policeman up there 50 years ago. That was so handy. <laughs> I don't know what I would have done without them because there are all kinds of details you could never find out in any other way. Sure. Now, now are we going to see a uh, Dr. Christofferson or a uh, Carl, who I think is the policeman's name, um, showing up in another book. Are you working on anything else right now? (laughs) Um, Deborah, I'm I'm, uh, 75. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, By the time I finish the next book, I'll be in my 80s. First, I have to get an idea. Then I have to, uh, or an idea for a character. Mm -hmm. And then I have to figure out... um, what it's about, which (laughs) (laughs) Which might take a while. (laughs) It does take a while. Do I have that much time? I don't know. I tried to retire after the third book, after Mm -hmm. Road Ends. I thought, okay, three is a nice nice number. Leave it at that. And um, I didn't know what to do with myself. So I was so bored. I thought, what do I do now? So possibly there... Carl will be back and Dr. Christofferson will be back and Liam and Joe and the whole mass of characters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I really don't know. And I won't know until I start doing it. Do you know what's interesting to me? You just mentioned Liam and Joe. Yes. Hmm. I think we might have to leave it there with an I think, I think we might. sparked. <laughs> And readers and listeners going, hmm, who's Joe? We haven't heard of Joe. Yeah. Yeah, well, well he's... <laughs> you're right. We should leave it there. You're absolutely right. Well, well, Mary Lawson, I think, thank you so much. This was a delightful conversation. And thank you for sharing your your thoughts and, uh, and you know, your, your process and... Uh, and how you do things and just uh, it was a lovely conversation thank you very much 
I enjoyed it thoroughly, Deborah. I've enjoyed every minute of it. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. That was Deborah Dundas, books editor at the Toronto Star, in conversation with Mary Lawson about her latest bestseller, A Town Called Solace. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend. If you enjoyed it or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. Your financial support will allow us to continue to bring you the world's most interesting authors and thinkers. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubé. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. I want to thank the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. Thank you for listening.